I just want to say, hey, as a result of last week, our missions week was fantastic. Can't tell you how many uh, emails I received from our missionaries saying, oh my gosh, I've never felt so loved and encouraged by a church before. And that is people that are going out there in the hallways after the service. I was here as after one o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, and people were still out there at the tables uh, talking with them, praying with them, getting to sign up on their, on their prayer emails and things like that, financially supporting them. And I uh, just want to say, well done, church. That's what it's about. You guys coming around there and saying, hey, we are a body, and we're going to help you out and, uh, and be a part of that. So I just want to say, well done there. That was a really, really good thing to see. So um, with that, I'm going to go back to the, if you, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Jeff just had you sit. Um, we started this a few weeks, a little while ago in Psalms, and I want to continue with this as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to pick it up in Colossians chapter 2 today. Uh, it's a new series we started a few weeks back called Jesus First, and so uh, we're going to pick that up here in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells, bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Heavenly Father, we long to see you lifted up here at DBC. Father, we long to see you take your rightful place upon the throne of our lives. And God, our confession is that many days and many weeks and months go by and you're not there. And Father, that's on us. God, we've worshiped many things. We've followed many things. God, we want you to take your rightful place upon the throne of our lives. God, would you ascend this morning with the distractions we walked in here with, the burdens, the heavy things. God, would those things descend? God, would you be lifted up and glorified today? We give you our time, and it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, last Sunday afternoon, as I was saying, it was a fantastic Sunday worshiping with the church and being a part of the missions week. We, I was out at a restaurant on Sunday afternoon, kind of unwinding and debriefing from the, the beauty of the day. And I was uh, noticing the TV over Kat's shoulder. It's not common. We always do that. But um, I saw the headlines of what happened with Kobe Bryant and the helicopter going down and all the families and the kids that were lost um, that day in the helicopter crash. I remember thinking they're going, you know, I'm not typically connected very heavily with celebrity culture or even athletic culture being a sports fan myself. I love them a lot. But um, but I remember kind of look, reading, seeing what was happening on the news and just this heavy sinking feeling sinking and going like, I can't believe Kobe's gone. Uh, I've never been a huge Kobe fan, uh, but I've always admired his passion for the game, the way that he plays, uh, the way that he gives 100% to everything that he, that he does. And so the all week long, it was uh, story after story of just uh, Mamba-isms. You probably saw the hashtag of Twitter and Instagram, stuff like that, and stories of Kobe's life. And I loved hearing some of these stories. One of my favorites came from a guy named Jason Williams, who is a retired basketball player. He's, a, he's on ESPN. 
it was a radio interview, and he was in tears kind of sharing one of his favorite, most meaningful Kobe stories. But it went back to his rookie year, uh, Jason's rookie year. He was new in the NBA. He was with one of the promising young stars. They were playing the Lakers in Los Angeles that week, and he got and they were playing that night. And so he showed up to the, um, to the stadium a little bit early, and uh, he wanted to get a good workout in before the game began. And so he shows up early. There's no one else there except for Kobe and his trainer on one end of the court. And he said, I'm walking in, I'm just seeing like Kobe's going to town. I mean, it is a full-fledged, 100 miles per hour workout going on. Like, it didn't matter that there was a game going on that night. He was going after it, full cuts, the whole thing, just going hardcore right there. So he goes, I went to the other end of the court, and he got his trainer, and he started getting his workout in. And he goes, as we were working out, it kind of became a competition to see, okay, who's going to be the first one to give in? Who's going to be the first one to leave the court, right? Who's going to outwork the other person? Right, and so he's, he's like, I'm going through my workout, and I keep looking over there, I'm like, man, I'm getting tired, I'm ready to go in, but Kobe's still going, and I can't leave if Kobe's still out there. And uh, Kobe's just, he's oblivious to the fact that Jason's still on the floor and stuff like that. And Jason goes, finally, I just got tired, I needed to go in, get ready for the game, and I went to the locker room, and I thought to myself, ha, 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 Kobe's going to be worn out and exhausted, we're going to destroy him tonight. Well, Kobe goes off for like 45 that night. The Lakers have their win, dominate their team and everything. And, and Jason goes, you know, after the game was done, I was just so mystified by the whole thing. I was like, how in the world did he have enough energy and enough passion to keep going off for 45 and to beat our team that night? So he goes, I sought him out after the game. And he went up to Kobe and, and he's like, Kobe, man, I, as he, he's a rookie. Like Jason's a rookie this time. He's like, I got to know, man, what, what was that about? Like you, like, you destroyed us on the court today. You wouldn't even let, you wouldn't even give it to me in the practice time. Like, you had to make sure that you knew you were going to be out there. Like, why in the world wouldn't you even give me that before the game? And Kobe looks at him and he goes, he goes, how in the world are you going to know what it looks like to really love something if I were to give it to you like that? How in the world are you going to know what it looks like to really love the game if I were just to walk away like that and give in to what you wanted to see from me? And Jason was like, I wasn't really expecting a, a kind of a serious comment right there. But like Kobe gets really intense and he looks at Jason right there and he goes, Jason, you're a young rookie. There are a lot of people that are in this league that really, really like basketball. Be one of the few that love it. Be one of the few that love it. And Jason goes, man, that just changed me, man. Changed the way that I worked. It changed the way that I did everything. It changed the way that I went about my professional career, everything. He's a man that knows, knows what it's like to go after something that he loves. I love that story because I can't help but think that this, it's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here in his letter to the Colossians. There's a lot of people in the first century that are jumping on board the Jesus train, that are getting caught up in the, in the way, that are following Jesus for the first time. And just over and over and over again, he's saying, hey, be among the few that actually put him first. Be among the few that actually love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Be among the few that know what it looks like to actually love him and to put some, put some weight behind the things that you say. And so that's what he's doing. The entire thing is just all about that in everything that you do, that Jesus would be preeminent in all things. This morning, I just want to draw out a warning in this passage and an imperative. And really both of them are going to kind of be along the same lines of, of uh, the what and why behind Jesus being first place in every part of our life. That's what we're going to see here in chapter 2. Now, keep in mind, as we're talking about the why in the world should Jesus be number one in our life, he's already made the case in chapter 1. And honestly, this is the main point. Scripturally, biblically, theologically, this is the 
weight of Colossians, the entire message. It's going to be found in chapter 1. But essentially he says in 115, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know why he should be first place in your life. You want to know why you should give him your all. You want to know why you should build everything in your life around him, that he should be preeminent in everything. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and also for him. In him all things hold together. And not only that, but he is the head of this body. It's not the elders, it's not me, it's not the ministers, it's not anybody else. He is actually the head of this body, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. And so that is Paul's main argument in the book of Colossians. He should be number one because he is number one. He alone is God. He alone is sovereign. He is preeminent. He was there in the beginning. He spoke and everything came into being. That should be sufficient for us to hold on to and for him to be first and foremost in our lives. Nevertheless, if that is not sufficient, he continues with a little bit more here in chapter 2. There's a warning and there's an imperative here in this chapter I'm going to draw out here. Uh, we're going to find the warning here in verse 4. It's what he says when, uh, when he says, See to it that no one deludes you with plausible arguments. Okay? Verse 4, he says, see to it, church, no one deludes you with plausible arguments. You guys know what a plausible argument is? Right? It's an argument that sounds like it could probably be true. It's an argument that you hear and you're sitting there going, you know what? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think I'm on board with that. It's, it's kind of like what we were all talking about in week three of the football season this year. We're like, yeah, the Cowboys could be Super Bowl this year, right? Like everybody was so pumped up about it. You're like, that sounds right. Yeah, we could do that, right? And that's what a plausible argument is. It's something that sounds like it could be true, but it may not actually be true. And what Paul's saying here is like, be careful that no one deludes you or no one deceives you by things that sound like they're true that aren't actually true. And he continues in the same idea in verse 8. He's going to say, see to it, church, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of this world rather than according to Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's not that there's anything wrong with philosophy in and of itself. Uh, it's just that uh, I was a philosophy minor in college and Except for the fact that it doesn't train you for anything. But um, so, like, there's that. But he says there's nothing inherently wrong with philosophy except for the fact that it's so easy to be taken captive by things that sound plausibly true. It's so easy to be taken captive by what everybody else is saying over here, by what everybody else is believing over here, by the ways and the tides of culture that are going on around us every day. It is so easy to be taken ca captive by those things instead of being taken captive uh, by Jesus Christ. I mean, church, that is the story of history, is it not? I mean, in the 1930s, we've got an entire country that has been deluded and taken captive by the deceit of Adolf Hitler, right? I mean, I mean, why? Is it, be, is it because what he was saying was true? No, it was popular. It was popular. He had the masses on his side. He was, he was charismatic. He was winsome in his ways and stuff like that. And as a result, an entire country actually believed that it was okay to terminate millions and millions of Jewish people. I mean, even yesterday, we started the beginning of Black History Month in the United States of America. Why in the world do we need Black History Month? It's because there was a time in our history that we were deluded by plausible arguments and actually considered our black brothers and sisters, three-fifths of the human being, not worthy of honor, not worthy of value, not worthy of the dignity of being considered human, a brother, a sister in Jesus Christ, not worthy to live in the same neighborhoods we live, not worthy to go to the same schools our kids are going to. Like, it's not hard to be deluded by plausible arguments. Like, it's not hard to be caught up in the ways of culture and in the ways that people believe all around you. It's not hard to be caught up in all those things. Just pay attention to some of the things that we're saying still to this day. 
I mean, 20 years ago, church, we were talking about things like how character matters, and now we're talking about things like how the ends justify the means. Are we paying attention at all to some headlines and things that are taking place culturally and some of the things that we say? I mean, the church is happening all over the place. God just wants you to be happy. He just wants you to be happy. Go and do whatever it is that's going to make you, make you happy in your heart. Like, never mind, like, the people that it may crush along the way. Never mind the people that you covenanted before God that you're going to love them till death do you part. Never mind that part of it. But if it makes you happy, go and chase what makes you happy. Never mind the fact that's not even a biblical concept to begin with, that he's called us to be holy, and it's in the pursuit of being holy that he actually makes us happy and produces his life inside of us. Never mind that part, right? But like, pay attention to some of the things that we're saying over here, and we're going, you know what, that sounds right. That sounds good. Yeah, he just wants me to be happy. Like, he just wants me to be happy. I mean, it's all over the place. Like, everything's relative today. Like, there is no truth, right? We've caught on to this. Like, everything's relative. The only thing you can know for certain is that you can't know anything. And I know that for certain. Right? So that's the irony of the whole thing. Like, like, that's the one thing you can know is that you can't know anything. All I know is that you're wrong about knowing something over there. Like, like listen to some of these things, right? Like, we're talking about how uh, all of us are on different journeys to the exact same God. All of us are simply on different journeys to the exact same God. It doesn't matter the specifics of what you believe, where you actually worship. We're all, we're all family here, and, like, we're all on different journeys to the exact same God. Never mind that those journeys all articulate completely contradictory things. They have different definitions of who that God is, how to be received, and how to w be welcomed by him, how to actually follow him. Like, but, hey, we're all on different journeys to the exact same God. Like, doctrine doesn't matter because the only thing that we need is love. Like, why, do you, why study theology? Why get caught up in all these things? Why get caught up in all these truths about God and who he is and things like that? All you need to do is love. By the way, that is a doctrine. It is a doctrine that says all he cares about is that, you, is that you live a loving life. And guess what? You probably get to define what love looks like and what it means. Right? Like that is a doctrine. That is a definition of who God is and what he wants on our behalf. Like don't even get me started about sexuality and our identity and things like that today. I am how I feel I am. Instead of I am who you say that I am. I am how you've created me to be. I am how I feel that I am today. Church, like it's not hard to be deluded by plausible arguments today. T.S. Eliot wrote, wrote this. He said, nothing dies harder than the desire to be liked. Nothing dies harder than the desire to be liked. Flowing through the veins of every person is an innate desire to swim in the mainstream of popular opinion. Church, that is all that it takes. All that it takes is, all it takes is a desire to be liked that is stronger than a desire to follow Jesus Christ. And you'll be easily deluded by whatever direction culture wants to move. Church, it's exactly what's happening here in Colossae. It's the problem we see here in this text. At verse 16, we're going to find out that there's a bunch of leaders, there's a bunch of uh, prominent people, not only in the church, but all around them too, that are saying things like, hey, you can't be right with God. You can't be right with God. You can't be serious about him. You can't follow him. You can't honor him unless you're eating the right food, unless you're drinking the right drink, right? You stay away from these drinks over here and you keep it to just, you know, grape juice, um, you observe the right Jewish festivals. You worship on the right Sabbath day. You practice asceticism, which is essentially this very, very strong form of discipline, right? It's, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, remove pleasures and comforts from my life, and that's how uh, people are going to know, hey, I'm really, really serious about God is because I've been fasting for like 70 days in a row, and uh, everybody can tell I'm living in a cave right now. That's what it said. It's extreme discipline in order to show, hey, I'm really serious about the things of God. That's what he's talking about right there in verse 18. They're worshiping the angels too, right? They have crazy, awesome visions that nobody else can hold you accountable to. Uh, no one else can see these visions and things like that. Like, is any of this sounding familiar at, at all? It, it's, it's what um, 
It's what a lot of people today are calling Jesus plus theology. Right? It's, it's not this idea that, hey, we're done with Jesus, we don't need him anymore. Most of us understand we need Jesus for salvation. Right? I can't accomplish salvation. I need his life, death, and resurrection to count as a substitute on my behalf so that I could be saved for all of eternity. The question here is, is he sufficient to satisfy me right now? Like, that's the question. And so we say, hey, I'm holding on to Jesus because I need that fire insurance right now. However, I'm going to hold on to Jesus here, but I'm going to still cling to a hundred other things in order to provide life and in order to provide satisfaction for me right now. And so it's Jesus plus kind of theology. It's Jesus plus, hey, a lifetime of good work so that I can make sure I pay back God for the grace that he gave me in the very beginning. Right? It's Jesus plus baptism before you can actually really be saved. Right? It's Jesus plus regular confession and penance and paying back for your sins before you can actually be forgiven by, uh, by Jesus Christ. It's Jesus plus speaking in tongues before you've really arrived or before you actually have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's Jesus plus King James Version before you can actually be considered a serious student of God's word or actually legit and truly uh, loving God's word in his text because evidently he wrote in the King, that's the original language of the word of God, evidently, King James Version. Um, it's Jesus plus a hundred other religions. It's Jesus plus the best wisdom that our world has to offer today. It's Jesus plus cosmic spirituality, which has become very, very popular, and all of our favorite Hollywood people are practicing it today, too. It's Jesus plus all these other kind of good things. It's Jesus plus materialism. I want to make sure I'm not missing out on life. It's Jesus plus comfort. It's Jesus plus all these other things. It's Jesus plus a million other things before you can finally rest in him. And church, honestly, like, that's always going to be the problem with the Jesus plus kind of theology. Like, the problem is, is it's always going to be that, that not only does it minimize what Jesus came to do for us in the very beginning, but whatever it is that you have on the other side of that plus sign and in the middle of that blank, like that will quickly become an idol for you, and you'll end up chasing after that thing and all kinds of other things that Jesus has already provided for you to enjoy in him. And so Paul's sitting here, he's going, hey, church, like, don't be deluded. Don't be deluded by the plausible arguments that you're hearing around you every single day. Like, don't be taken captive by empty philosophy, by these religious traditions. Don't be deluded by this Jesus plus kind of theology. Um, instead, here it is, walk with him in the same way that you received him, is what he says in verse 6. Instead of that, like, walk with him in the same way as you received him. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Church, how did you receive him as Lord? Like when you and I came to Jesus Christ and we received this, this gift of salvation, we came with our hands open wide. We came not, I mean, did you honestly come and say, Lord, like Jesus, look at all the great things that I've done. Look at my church attendance. Are you kidding me? Like that's fantastic. Like do we actually, did we actually do that? I mean, do we actually say, hey, like, do you remember that lady that I helped out in the grocery store? Like, that was awesome. Like, my charitable works is fantastic. I mean, oh my God, did we actually do any of that stuff and say, look, look how awesome I am. Come and receive me. We came with open arms, church. We came completely dependent on the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in recognition that I am a sinner standing before a holy God. And I need him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I'm coming and I'm asking for his mercy. I need undeserved favor, which is the definition of grace. I need him to give me that favor. I do not deserve. And the only way that I can get it is I come to him in faith, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he alone is the, is the one who can forgive me of my sins. He alone conquered sin and death. That is all we brought to the table, church. That's exactly what he's talking about. What he's saying here is that we walk in that way. 
Walk now in the same way that you began. Like, don't, don't minimize what he did there at the very beginning. Keep first things first. Like, don't let a bunch of great things, spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, um, charitable work and missional living, don't let any of those things become this self-righteous source of pride inside of your life. Don't do those things in order to get more grace. Do those things as an act of worship in response to the grace that you've already received in Jesus Christ. Walk in the same way that you walked in the very beginning, dependent upon him, grateful for what he's done, and let all the things you do be an overflow of that act of worship. And so he continues here and he says, he continues and he says, be rooted, be rooted, church, be built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, like, don't just go an inch deep with him. Like, don't just grow tiny little baby roots that are never going to do you any good in your life with him. Don't let, grow deeply in him. Be deeply rooted in him. Hunger for him. Spend time with him. Come to understand the depths of his word so that you can savor his beauty and be built up in him. I was reading this article this past week on uh, what, what's the, the difference between um, good athletes and great athletes. What, what takes you from being a high school wonder to a college stud to... Um, a professional athlete, even Kobe Bryant, one of the greats of all time. And it's just talking about how the number of different things that the great ones all have in common. But essentially, it was just talking about how all the great ones, they have a profound love for the game that causes them to go deeper into their sport than anyone else is willing to go. And they said that's one of the main things that kind of underlines all of the great athletes. They have a profound love for the game that causes them to go deeper into their love for the game and the disciplines of their game than most anyone else is willing to go. So the article is profound. It talked about all kinds of interesting things like, hey, the great ones are able to persevere when no one else is able to persevere, right? Like they're able to endure more pain, more difficulty, more suffering than anyone else is able to endure. I was reminded of uh, Michael Jordan's favorite famous uh, flu game in 1997. Anybody remember this one? Uh, this is game five of the NBA finals. Uh, Jordan comes in and he's got 103 degree fever. He's suffering from the flu. It's game five. It's a critical game. He goes off for 38 points. I mean, just this unbelievable game, just one of the most incredible things. But that's what he's talking about. They're able to endure and they're able to persevere through difficulty when no one else is able to persevere. It talks about how the, all the great ones are students of the game. This is what makes them great. Like, they don't just show up and play. They actually study their craft. And so we talked about, like, uh, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, some of the great uh, some of the great ones in football. This is a picture of Peyton Manning. I love this picture. I think Peyton Manning's hilarious. But anyway, uh, this is Peyton Manning getting a, a little ankle treatment. Uh, he's got his football helmet on. He, always, he was always kind of in the mindset of football there. And then he's got his little iPad there, and he's studying the game plan for the upcoming week. He's reading the defenses of the opponent right there. And, but they just talk about like he's always studying the game. He's not just showing up and throwing the football around. Like he knows where the defense is going to be before they even get there. So the article continues, it says, that's what separates the good from the great. They keep on and talking about, hey, the great ones are never content to uh, be okay with their weaknesses. They're always working to perfect their weaknesses, right? So they don't run away from their weaknesses. They don't run away from their sin. They don't run away from the things that cripple them. They, they identify these things. They bring them to the forefront and they say, yeah, these things I'm not great at. And I'm going to offer them over and I'm going to work on these things so that I can become great and strong and perfect even in the, in the weaknesses. And it goes on a lot of things. They're confident. They, they view training as a full-time job. They, they don't have these off-seasons that a lot of people take. Like they're always, always, always training. Even when they take rest, 
Even when they take rest, they understand that intentional rest is necessary for their bodies to come back together again so that they can actually perform at a peak level. It talks about how they're always building upon the basics, right? They never, they all, every year they come back and they never go back, they, they never get bored with, hey, this is how you dribble a basketball. This is throw, how you throw a football. This is how you hit a baseball. Like they never get bored with those things. They come back to the fundamentals over and over and over again. Why? So that they can master the art of consistency. Uh, I was reminded of this this past week, but um, <laughs> the first time I ever played golf, uh, was back in, the early days of, uh, back in the early days of seminary. And Kat had just given me a uh, set of golf clubs uh, for my birthday. I've never played golf in my life, but it's my birthday. She gets me a set of golf clubs. I open it. I'm like, what in the world is this? I've never played a day in my life. And, uh, and she's like, well, yeah, but you're going to be a pastor, and pastors are supposed to play golf. So uh, I was like, that's very, very wise. And uh, so I was like, you're exactly right. So I was like, all right. Looks like I'm going to need to learn how to play golf. And so I call a bunch of my buddies, and we're like, hey, we're pastors. We need to learn to play golf. And so they get some clubs, and we go play golf. And, and I'll never forget, I line up the first day. I've never really, you know, a little bit of recreational kind of golf course stuff maybe in the past. But I get up there and tee off on hole one, play baseball all growing up. Probably could have been pro except for the politics. But anyway, um, I'm just kidding. But like, so I go to line up, and I'm not kidding. Like, I just crushed my first drive. Like, it was unbelievable. Tiger was jealous. It was incredible. And like, I, it was just this unbelievable thing. Straight down the course, and like, I was, I was just elated. I was like, what's up? I flipped my, I flipped my club. I'm like strutting around. Like, I don't know what Tiger thinks he's so awesome at. I was like, this is the easiest thing in the world. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And of course, the problem is there's a lot of swings that go into a game. And, like, I didn't hit one more shot that was straight the rest of the day. And, and I'm sitting there kind of going, like, like, how in the world does Tiger do it? Tiger is able to do it over and over and over and over again because he has such a profound love for the game that it causes him to go deeper into the game and to put more work into it so that he can perfect these things and be consistent in doing the little things great over and over and over and over again. Church, that's what it means to be deeply rooted in the things of Jesus, to go deeper, to, go, to, to commit ourselves to the training, to come before him over and over again and say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know the depths of your character. I want to know your beauty. I want to know the way that you think, the things that you love. I want my heart to mimic your heart. I need to know you deeply. I need to go further with you than others are willing to go. I'm not afraid of my sin and weakness because I know how that's going to be re received by you. I know that there's healing in you. I'm going to go fully and totally and completely deep with you you. And here's why. Here's what he says in verse 9. Because in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And now he says, you've been filled in him who is ahead of all rule and authority. In other words, it's like he's already provided everything that you need. He's already provided everything that you need. So on top of what he's already said in verse 1, or chapter 1, that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things were created by him and for him. And in him all things hold together. Like on top of all of that, what he's saying is that he really is, church, sufficient to satisfy and to save. So be deeply rooted in him. Go in deep with him. Get to understand the fullness of life that's found in him because he really is sufficient to satisfy and to save. Church, this is not what many of us believe today. I mean, we are, we're living in this time where cultural Christianity is the norm. And we're living in this time where we, we show up to things and, you know, we, we have a good language and everything. And it's not normative to dive in deep and to say, hey, I actually believe you, not just for salvation, for, but for sufficiency, uh, sufficiency of satisfaction today. I think for a lot of us, that's the question that we have. I know that you can save me in the end. Can you satisfy me today? 
Barna came out with a study a little while ago that was talking about how this is one of the main things that's keeping young adults away from the church, away from Christianity, and away from God's word today. There's this underlying conviction that the word of God is thousands of years old, thousands of years old and completely irrelevant for my life today. It makes no difference in my life. I don't need to know the things of Jesus. This is all, diff- this is all outdated. Uh, the word of God and Christianity is a straitjacket upon my life. It's cramping my style. Like it's, it, it's not the path to freedom. The path to freedom is letting me, it's just me going and doing whatever I want to do. I mean, I'll never forget um, one of my f- favorite things about <laughs> my mom and what, what she used to do uh, professionally growing up was uh, I'll never forget these, inter- these encounters that we had with different people at the grocery store. My mom, for 20 plus years, was a BSF teaching leader, which is Bible study fellowship. And um, she loved the word of God. We always, she was just always studying it. We played this game around the, the kitchen table. And we're like, Mom, what's Hezekiah? One, three. Like, that's not even a thing, right? And we just say these, we just make up these Bible verses and stuff. And, and we're like, like, come on, tell me, Daniel 2, 4. And, and you know, she just kind of go through this catalog. And she'd be like, okay, it's talking about this. I think it's saying this. And she just knew God's word like you wouldn't believe. And, and there's so much that I love about my mom. I loved going along with her to grocery stores, and we would be out there, and she taught the word of God for 20 plus years to thousands of women, and uh, we would just be out there, and there'd be random people that just run up to her, Beth, 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 I got got to tell you, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It absolutely changed my life, and I got to tell you this, like I didn't believe that it could do it. I didn't believe that it could do it. I thought that studying the Bible was boring. I thought that studying the Bible was was outdated. It was completely irrelevant. I didn't think it was going to do anything for me. I went, and I remember this one lady, she goes, I only went because I needed you to stop asking me. And um, (laughs) and she goes, that's why I wanted to go at the beginning because I knew you weren't going to let up. And that's exactly right. She was not going to let up. And she goes, can I just tell you, it changed my life being in God's word for the very first time. My kids are begging me to go to BSF now because I'm a better mom and I'm a better wife and I'm a better person in the home and they're seeing this change. They're seeing that everything is so different in my life as a result of me diving in to the depths of God's word and understanding Jesus for the very first time in my life. Church, that's what Paul's saying. Be deeply rooted in God's word. Be deeply rooted in him. Be rooted in the things of Jesus, like know him so well, know his heartbeat, know his mind, know the things that, that, that make him weep, the things that, that, that causes him to go and to do just incredible things. Know Jesus so deeply. Like I've told you one of my favorite articles from, a, from Psychology Today. This is an a, a article I came across a long time ago, but um, I was reminded of it this past week talking with some of my counselor friends. And uh, the article is just talking about how the, the three basic needs that all people have today. And it was just talking about how if we don't get any of these three needs, then we're going to spend the rest of our life chasing after them and trying to find satisfaction in these things. But basically they say the three biggest needs that we all have are to feel morally clean, physically, or emotion, physically and emotionally safe and significant. And they say if, if we don't have any of those three things in our life, we will do whatever it takes to go find those things in and of our own selves. But we have to feel morally clean. We've got to feel like we're good people in and of ourselves. We've got to feel physically safe and emotionally safe at the same time. And we've got to feel significant. And so it talks about a lot of different things. If you're not feeling clean, then you're going to be a really, really, really good rule follower. If you're not feeling clean, then you're either going to be a very good liar because you want everybody else to think, hey, you're a very, very good person. And so you're always going to be lying and setting up all these things in order to convince people of those deals. If, if you don't feel clean, then you're going to say things like, hey, don't judge me, bro. Who are you to judge me? And you're going to minimize standards of truth and standards of, moral, uh, of, of morality and to say that, hey, they don't actually exist so that you can feel better about whatever decisions you're choosing to make. 
talk about how you may get really, really religious or you may get very, very uh, philanthropic so that you can feel better about some of the things we do. So we pay back some of the bad things that we've done. Or the other alternative is that you may give into it altogether and just give in to your depravity. Yeah, I don't feel clean about myself, so I'm just going to give in and that's who I actually am. Like, why, why hide it any longer? Talk about things like, hey, if you don't feel physically safe, then it's either going to be fight or flight. Right? You're going to bow up all the time. You're always going to be fighting or you're going to be the aggressor or else you're going to be running away in fear the whole time. If you don't feel emotionally safe, you're, you're going to feel um, insecure all the time or else you're going to do whatever it takes for people to like you, right? Uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, if, or you're, going to be, you're not going to let other people in. And you're going to kind of put on this facade and you won't be able to love other people. You won't allow them to love you back. And there's always going to be this facade up there. And, of course, if you don't feel significant, then you're going to be insecure. And you're going to do whatever it takes for people to like you. And that may be on social media, trying to gain, whatever, do whatever it takes to get a million different likes. It may be an obsession with your tan, your biceps, however you look, right, whatever that may be, whatever you can flaunt and that kind of a thing. It may be something like that. It may be a really, really hard work ethic. And you're saying, you know what, I don't feel significant in my life, and so I'm going to make sure that people know I'm significant through the incredible job that I do. And so the article is just going off and saying, people are going to chase after these three things. They're going to do whatever it takes to feel these three things. And so I'm enjoying the article, and at the same time, I'm getting really, really frustrated because, hey, we are describing a problem here that there is not a prescribed solution to right here in this article. Meanwhile, Paul's sitting here saying, hey, Jesus has satisfied everything that you need. He is fully sufficient, and you have been filled in him. Here, look, look at some of the things that he's saying. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses, verse 13, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your sin by canceling the record of debt against you with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, church, like if you are desiring and hungry to feel clean about your life, then you don't have to redefine sin. You don't have to rely about it and pretend that it's not there in your life. You don't have to do all this other religious thing, all these other religious things to make you feel good about yourself because when Jesus went to the cross, he took the record of debt that stood against you and he nailed it to that tree. And church, like he left it behind. His sacrifice is sufficient once and for all. Psalm 103 is going to say, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed the penalty of sin from your life. Paul's going to say, 1 Corinthians 6, he's going to say, you and I were really, 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 really unclean before we were found in Jesus Christ. Maybe that was in religiosity. Maybe that was in doing your own thing. Either way, you and I were incredibly unclean. However, if you are found in Jesus Christ, then you and I have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been sanctified and called holy, and you've been justified and declared righteous, not because you are righteous, but because that's what he gives you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, church, like you may not feel clean in any given moment, and you may not be doing things that are actually clean in that moment. However, if you are found in Jesus Christ, then you can rest assured that you are actually clean before a holy God, not because you are, because you stand cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Church, like, like, like if safety is the thing that you need, then safety is exactly what you get in him. You don't have to fight or flight because in Christ, even though you were dead in your sin, he has raised you. He has made you alive together with him. Verse 15, he's going to say, he actually disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to shame by triumphing over them. In other words, church, like he's already defeated the enemy. He's already won the battle. Like your future is secure. He's already won those things. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That's the cry all throughout the New Testament. Like, where is, where, is the, where is the destruction from that? He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He's gone ahead to prepare a place for you. Church, like, it's all right here. 
It's all right here in God's word. It's here in the depths of knowing Jesus. Like you don't have to chase people's approval to know that you're significant. He sent his one and only son to come and to suffer and to die for you, that you could live with him for all of eternity. Like that you could be given the right to be called a child of God. Church, if you're a child of God, you've been given the right to be called a son or daughter of the king, then I promise you, you're already significant. You've been made in the image of God. You've been given inherent dignity and value as such an image bearer of God. You are significant because he has made you and given you significance. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. In other words, he has given you things to do that only you are supposed to be doing. Church, I promise you, you are significant. It doesn't have to be found everywhere else. It is found right here in the depths of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, sufficient to save and sufficient to satisfy in the right here and now. But here it is, church, like you've got to be rooted in him to be able to enjoy the fruit of that kind of relationship. You have to be deeply rooted in him to know, hey, there is cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is significance through what he has done on my behalf. Like there is safety to be found in him. Like you have, to, you have to be rooted in him to walk in that kind of fruit. I was reading a lot in light of uh, Black History Month this past week. Started yesterday. Started reading the, the week before. A lot of my favorite stories from years past and some of the new ones that I'd never even known about recently. One of the new stories I came across that I never heard about was a man named Gowan Pamphlet. Gowan Pamphlet was the first ordained slave in the uh, Baptist church in the late 1700s. Um, And so, uh, fascinating story. Obviously, they were not ordaining a whole lot of slaves back in the day. Gowan Pamphlet was the first. Um, He came to faith through a bunch of evangelistic revivals at the time. Like many slaves, he was not able to read. He comes to faith at a revival. The the, uh, evangelist that was there that day just decided to come and give him his old copy of a, a beaten and tattered old Bible. And he gave it to him and Gowan didn't know how to read, so he comes back home, and he found someone that knew how to read, and so it's the only book that he had, and so he spent his youth and his early adult years learning to read on this beaten, tattered, um, just weathered old Bible there, and so he had to read, and so he goes on and just, he's like, that's the only thing I knew, and so that's the only thing I could devour, and so that's all I had to read is just feeding my soul, feeding my mind, feeding my heart, my heart on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Years go on, and there was a famous pastor named Moses, they called him, and uh, he passed on, and his ministry was gone. They needed someone to step up and to be the pastor, and so Gowan steps up because the only training that he had was, hey, I know God's word. I've been reading it for years. It's the only thing I'm able to read, and so he steps up, and he starts leading this church, and it goes on to be the largest gathering of slaves uh, in the south um, that's on file today, and so how they would do this was in the middle of the night, they would go away, and uh, their masters, their, their owners would go to sleep and they would slip out in the middle of the night. They'd go out to the woods and uh, there'd be anywhere between 200 and 500 slaves that would gather together in the woods. And Gowan would just get up there and he would just start preaching. And he, all he knew was the gospel. All he knew was that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was satisfactory. And he just started preaching the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he just started just laying it all out there over and over again. And uh, these people just started, just, they just started praising, they started worshiping. I love his fame. The thing that he kept saying over and over and over again, his favorite message to preach was, was, listen to me, folks. He says, this world is not your home. These men are not your master. This world is not your home. These men are not your master. 
And he just kept coming back to that message over and over and over again. All I know is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God saw you. God saw you. He saw your burden. He saw your predicament. He sent his one and only son to come and to suffer and die for you. You are significant so that you can be safe in life with him. You, you, your sins can be cleansed. You can have eternity with him. Like This world is not your home. These men are not your master. Church, like how in the world do you find that kind of joy as a slave living in the south if you're not deeply rooted in heaven? Like, how in the world do you find that? Like, they would go all night long, they'd just be singing and dancing, hundreds of slaves in the middle of the night uh, from a long day of work, tired and exhausted, saying, there's nothing better I could be doing with my time than worshiping the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Like, how in the world do you find joy and hope in that kind of scenario, in that kind of predicament, surrounded by that much injustice, unless you are deeply rooted in the things of God? Like, where in the world do you find it, church? Like, Martin Luther King Jr. was just reading some of the great ones and stuff from his story, too. Death threats seemingly every single day in the 60s. Somehow he clung to a message of love and grace during his fight for equality. One of my favorite quotes of his, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. Church, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. Church, how in the world do you get that kind of mindset unless you're on your face before Jesus all the time, deeply rooted in him, keenly aware he has forgiven me of my sins. My sins are great. He has given me grace. He has given me mercy. He has given me forgiveness. We are all on the same page. How in the world do you say things like forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude in the midst of the horrors and injustice around him every single day unless you're deeply rooted in Jesus. Church, he is sufficient to satisfy and save. He is sufficient to give you life right now, no matter how hard and difficult and painful and evil and unjust life is around you every single day. He is sufficient to satisfy and save. Harriet Tubman, another one. I was just, how many of you guys saw the Tubman movie here recently? Excellent, excellent movie, but uh, I love her story. One of the most effective conductors ever on an under, underground, underground railroad. Nearly 19 trips, I think the stories go anywhere between 13 and 19. 19 solo missions to res rescue nearly 300 individual slaves, taking them from slavery into freedom at much peril. Like if you remember this, uh, I love her story in the movie, but evidently she wasn't a huge reader at the time. Not many were. Uh, she was given a number of passages and she, just, she was just given a, f a number of verses and she would just meditate upon those verses and she would read them and she would just let them soak deep into her heart over and over again. And so finally she made the escape. She crossed over into freedom. She recognized the injustice of everything that was going on and she risked her life 19 different times to cross back over and to grab gatherings of slaves and to bring them over to freedom. She wasn't a huge student of God's word. She memorized a little bit that she knew, but she was an incredible prayer warrior. And I love this, Harriet Tubman, she was so in touch with the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But the stories go that she would be out in the woods with a gathering of slaves and they'd be trying to cross the, trying to cross the river, trying to cross wherever they were. And they would hear the dogs coming on one side, the authorities on the other side. And they'd inevitably get to this place in the woods where they had nowhere else to go. And she would just sit there and stop and she would just pray and say, Holy Spirit, we need you to lead me. We need you to lead us. Take us to safety. Take us to safety. And she would stop, and the other people telling the story, they would say, we are hearing the dogs getting closer to us. We are hearing the sirens getting closer to us. And she is just sitting there waiting on the Holy Spirit, saying, I'm not going to go until you tell us where to go. Church, I, I love this quote from her. She says, I can say what most conductors are not able to say. I never run my train off the track, and I've never lost a passenger. You know why she's never lost a passenger? There is safety in Jesus Christ. She has never deviated from that track. She has stayed right there. She is in tune with the Holy Spirit saying, I'm not going to go where you're not already going. 
Church, there is, there is sufficient, there is satisfaction in Jesus Christ. He is sufficient to satisfy and save. There is safety in him. There is cleansing in him. There is significance in him. But here it is, church. You have to, have to, have to be rooted in him to receive the blessings of that kind of life, to receive the assurances of the truth of what he's already done on our behalf. You've got to take the time to train. You've got to take the time to, to go year-round, to open up the Word of God and to study it. You've got to take the time to sign up for Bible study this week and to do it with a bunch of brothers and sisters to go deep into the Word of God and say, Jesus, I need to know you. I need to know you. I need to know your heart. I need to know your mind. I want to know everything about you. Now I want to keep coming back to the basics of the gospel over and over and over again. I need to know what you've done on my behalf. I need to know what your heart looks like and how that applies to me. I need to know every single thing about you. Not so that we can get his favor, but because he's already given it to us in the first place. Church, Paul's admonition to the Colossians is the same one that I have for us today. Don't be deluded by the plausible arguments around you today. May we be a church that is not deluded by the plausible arguments that are all around you today. Don't be deceived by a Jesus plus kind of theology that will make you ultimately lose sight of Jesus. Be deeply, deeply rooted in him and be confident that he is sufficient to satisfy and to save.